If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as we continue to cope with COVID, we look at the alarming spread of bird flu as more species are infected. Plus, did someone say free? The Hong Kong government is offering half a million free airline tickets to entice visitors back to the city. Would you take them off on the offer? And it's not easy being green. Should elected officials be forced to provide their carbon footprint to the public? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on bird flu or the other name uh, we often use uh, to refer to bird flu is avian flu and it is alarmingly spreading globally. Globally, We're still dealing with the challenges of COVID, of course, but it's also important to know what scientists are seeing. Now, experts have warned that the recent uh, detection of bird flu in mammals around the world is concerning. Uh, now, the pathogen, pathogen, it's important to remember here, it hasn't um, often infected humans, but one study showed that 56% of those that have contracted a bird flu have died, and that's based on one study alone. But globally, animals impacted have included foxes, uh, even grizzly bears, otters, minks, and seals. Uh, since late 2021, Europe has been gripped by its worst ever outbreak of bird flu. Uh, North America and South America have also experienced severe outbreaks uh, as well. Uh, I was looking at some of the headlines today. You're seeing uh, bird flu detected in Russia, in Turkey, Nepal, Ecuador, Bolivia, Nigeria. Uh, this, of course, has led to the culling of tens of millions of domestic poultry uh, worldwide. Now, the first case of of uh, bird flu in a Canadian commercial poultry flo- uh, flock in 2023 was confirmed, of course, on January 7th. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency uh, said the case that they're talking about was confirmed in Chilliwack. Um, and, of course, uh, the Chilliwack case was confirmed just one day after bird flu was confirmed in two backyard flocks in BC as well. Now, so far, BC has been the only province to have a confirmed case in a commercial flock this year. Uh, but these headlines that I've been talking about have not only been local, but they've been global as well. So we want to get an idea of, of how serious this is. Uh, joining me now is Jason Tetro. He's a microbiologist with um, a specialty in studying emerging pathogens. He's also host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Jason, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, how serious is this in your mind? Well, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, I first heard about H5N1 back in the beginning of 1998 uh, in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But the fact is that um, the the virus, when it first showed up, scared us all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called the the sphincter impact. You you can probably figure out what that means. It was very high at the time. Mm -hmm. But then what ended up happening is we did a little bit more research into the H5N1. And what we found was that it was actually infecting humans who essentially were getting very, very close to animal species uh, that were carrying the virus. Uh, so birds, uh, pigs, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. The reason is that, um, so, you know, SARS has ACE2 as its receptor. We've talked about this for like three years, right? Mm-hmm. Well, flu has a specific receptor and it's different from birds and humans for the most part. 
Mm-hmm. But humans do have some of the same receptor as you see in birds. And what ends up happening is that if you inhale enough of this virus, then it's going to actually get into your lungs, find those receptors and grow. Mm. And when that happens, you basically have a one in two chance of dying. That's how it works. What we're not seeing, okay, Mm -hmm. is a mutation in the virus that allows it to infect the human receptor, which means that while it's a worry, and it has been for 25 years, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a huge threat to humans. Uh, the present uh, headlines that you're seeing uh, around the world, mm-hmm. particularly Europe, um, why have we not, in, in those years that you're explaining to me not, now, not been able to, I mean, you can't eliminate this stuff completely, but yeah. why has it been around for so long that we are not able to at least uh, reduce its impact? Oh, once it's established in the society, it's there forever. Um, You basically have about a year to stamp out any kind of emerging virus, emerging pathogen. If you don't do that within that one year, it's going to spread. And when you have it in a species that travels a lot, SARS-CoV-2, humans, Mm -hmm. and for avian flu, migratory birds, then it goes all over the place. Once that happens, then you essentially are sitting there doing surveillance, waiting for a mutation that's going to lead to increased spread. And more recently, that mutation happened. And so now we're seeing this new clade, as we call it, we call it lineage with SARS. It, this new clade is causing infections everywhere across the Northern Hemisphere. Now, what's going to be interesting and possibly fascinating is to see whether or not that translates to the southern hemisphere when we actually have now had the migration patterns to the south. So far, I haven't seen that yet, which means that maybe, just maybe, the virus didn't travel all the way down there and instead has been pretty much limited to the northern hemisphere. Hmm. Uh, If you do get a bird flu, what are the symptoms? Uh, sorry, it's bad. Uh, basically, you within the first 24 to 48 hours, um, you're having trouble breathing. Um, you're very, very weak. Uh, you need medical attention straight away. And essentially what ends up happening is that while you're in um, the hospital, uh, and I do apologize, it gets a little morbid from here, you essentially have more and more difficulty breathing and eventually your lungs turn to the same kind of consistency as your liver, and therefore you're no longer able to bring in air in and out of your body. Uh, in regards to interaction with animals then, uh, some people even have you know, mm-hmm. ba- ba- chickens in their backyard, uh, even in an urban environment. Yeah. Uh, should they you know, be interacting uh, with those set animals? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious in regards to just precautions people can take. Mm-hmm. What should they yeah. be doing? Well, what we found is, um, and again, 25 years ago, up until about 2005, when H5N1 was really spreading around, I know you probably don't remember that, but we do, um, we were noticing that people were uh, sleeping with their animals, sleeping with their pets. So they would actually sleep with their chickens or they would sleep with their pigs. This was um, something that was fairly common. I remember in 2003 in Vietnam, there was literally a campaign for people not to sleep with animals to be able to prevent uh, avian flu from spreading. So Really, what you want to do is you want to avoid long contact times within a very small environment with animals that potentially could have an infection. And again, they will look really bad when they are infected. If they seem perfectly normal and there's nothing going on, then don't worry about it. You can play as much as you want with them. But a minute that they start to look ill, and especially if they do happen to have 
be a species that we already know has had avian flu, then I would very much recommend that you keep your distance, call a veterinarian and get someone in there immediately. Uh, you see this sometimes in the news where, uh, let's say, a mink farm uh, is impacted and, and they call the minks. Mm-hmm. I think they recently did that uh, in Spain. I think that was in October. Yeah. We do that here in British Columbia a couple times. We've heard about that in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Are, are minks specifically different in regards to their respiratory system when it comes to uh, human beings? Yeah, they're half and half. Basically, they have half of the avian, half of the human. So as soon as Uh they come into contact with the H5N1, it's going to go in and go, hey, hey, look at this, and then start growing like crazy. Now, the real difference, of course, is that most of the time, it isn't very easily spread from mink to mink. But because of this new mutation and this new clade, it appears to be spreading very efficiently within the mink. And this is where people start getting worried because, well, what if all of a sudden it becomes uh, able to infect using the human receptor that's in there? And that's when it becomes something of an issue. And they're culling because, like I said, you have a year. And if you don't get it within that year, then you're probably going to have trouble. So as soon as you see that in these communities of animals, they just essentially get rid of them. Uh, for our listeners, uh, you know, the headlines, of, uh, I'm noticing more of them over the last couple of weeks, uh, although this has been an ongoing mm-hmm. issue, as you said. Uh, how, how concerned should people be? Is it still a question of it does not transfer from animals to human beings? I, although when I look at these uh, articles, uh, you see them in the New York Times, Washington Post, and mm-hmm. a lot of them in, in Europe as well. Uh, you do get a little concerned. What should people take from the news that they are uh, are already probably getting or maybe getting in regards to this issue. Yeah, and and I mean, I I do respect many of the scientists who are, you know, very very concerned that we're not going to be ready for the next pandemic, the next one being most likely some kind of avian flu. And that's just simply because we spent the last 3 years showing how unprepared we were for something that was called a coronavirus. And the flu mutates even worse than the coronavirus. So at the end of it all, the the concern, while maybe not for every single person listening here to be a huge one, for those of us who are in the emerging pathogens community, we definitely are hoping that the message continues to be heard so that we can continue to maintain that um, surveillance and, and, and just essentially that proactive nature so that we're prepared for it as opposed to what happened with SARS-CoV-2. Jason, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Take care. All right. That is Jason Tetro. He's a microbiologist with a specialty in studying emergent, emerging pathogens and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Hong Kong is ready to welcome you all again. It's time for all of us to say hello, Hong Kong. Hey, welcome back to the show. And what you're hearing is a Government of Hong Kong promotional campaign. Uh, It's been dubbed Hello Hong Kong, and it was unveiled late last week. It was a big, splashy event. Lots of dancers and uh, lights and everything else. Now, all of this was done because the Hong Kong government, now get this, is offering half a million free airline tickets to visitors willing to travel to the city. It's uh, obviously an effort to 
reverse the four years of plummeting tourism numbers. We all know uh, the impact, of course, on um, uh, of of COVID on on our global economy. But of course, four years of plummeting tourism numbers, and it has significant impact on Hong Kong. And obviously, they want to revive the economy. Now, Hong Kong um, has fully opened up its borders to mainland China as of Monday. The mass ticket handout. Now, it's not just going to be open to everyone right away, but the tickets that they're giving away will initially, as of March 1st, be offered to residents living in Southeast Asia. And then it expands to mainland China uh, in April. And then on in May, the rest of the world can apply for those half a million free airline uh, tickets. And of course, you apply online uh, to three of Hong Kong Airlines. It's Cathay Pacific, HK Express, and Hong Kong Airlines. Uh, and give me, let me give you a sense of the numbers here for a second. In 2018, so pre-COVID, visitor numbers to Hong Kong hit 65 million. 65 million. So the next year dropped to 55. So a bit of an impact, but 65 million was the high watermark. Beyond COVID, let's remember, there were violent clashes there, a crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, all of that. In 2020, the number went down all the way to three and a half million. And last year, last year, the numbers hit just 600 thousand people. Now, significant uh, shutdown in the economy, of course, and of course, uh, the after effects of the pro-democracy movements. So 65 million down to 600,000. Uh, it is, of course, a global push, not just in Hong Kong, but many other cities in regards to enticing um, consumers back. Joining me now to talk about the recovering tourism industry is Claire Newell. Claire is the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Jazz. Uh, well, I was reading the paper this weekend, and uh, usually the Washington Post doesn't, uh, uh, you know, do too much on travel and tourism. But I, the the headline uh, just was uh, quite interesting: Hong Kong offering five hundred thousand free plane tickets to lure tourists back. Uh, do you know of any other city that's gone to that uh, extent to uh, to uh, invite tourists back to the to their city? Well, not. Quite. I mean, this has been an interesting ploy. They put these into the marketplace uh, about a month ago. So they obviously still have some. That tells you what the demand is at the moment, Jazz, for that destination. And I'm sure with the, um, you know, the, the balloons in the air that people are <laughs> a little more hesitant to go um, to Hong Kong and, of course, mainland China. But this isn't the only ploy. Over the years, I've heard so many. And, and actually, a lot of that, the more interesting and unique things happened during COVID. As the restrictions were starting to be eased, lots of different countries were offering different ploys. There were tax incentives. Um, there were um, people offering a third off of any trip that you were going and the governments were subsidizing. These were things that were happening in Europe. But this was an interesting one for sure. Uh, do you see uh, an uptick in Hong Kong soon? And I just use Hong Kong as an example. Cities like Hong Kong are still struggling to to, to entice those um, those customers back. I mean, Hong Kong is an extreme case because of the the lockdown and the democracy uh, pro democracy uh, protests that, that 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 were part of that city's history. But other um, uh, cities and democracies are still struggling to get those tourists back too. 
Yeah, they are. And, and especially I feel for the countries, uh, a lot of Asian countries and the, the South Pacific, they opened up much later than others. So their tourism boards are busy trying to attract people. And I know that the South Pacific is actually doing much better than anticipated, faster than certain Asian destinations, because they're they're on a lot of people's bucket list. Not to say that there is not in Asia as well. Um, I, we are seeing lots of demand for places like Vietnam and Cambodia. Thailand is coming back, Bali, Indonesia coming back. Um, but it's the places that are maybe on the outskirts that aren't seeing as much demand. And, and I feel for some of these places because they really rely on tourism. Uh, and l- let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Vancouverites and British Columbians generally. Uh, it's that time okay. of the year where it's rainy, it's cloudy, and some days you just don't see the sun. A lot of days you don't see the sun, and <laughs> hence the desire to go somewhere sunnier, particularly places like Mexico. Now, recently we've covered uh, the challenges and issues of, of violence in Mexico. Have things uh, gotten better there? Yeah, it was a bit of a spark that happened um, the first week of January, but things have definitely subsided. And, you know, I, I still remind people that, you know, with recent violence and unrest in places like Mexico, Peru, Brazil, all starting 2023, there's been issues. Just a reminder to go before you go anywhere or hand over your credit card to go and make sure you're informed and make a decision to protect your personal safety. I advise going like I always have. I sound like a broken record if you've listened over the years, but travel.gc.ca just to see if there's any travel advisories issued for the country, region, or destination that you're planning to visit. And I say go twice to that, Jazz. I say during the planning stages, and then once again in the days leading up to your trip. And you can get all sorts of information there. Like, do you need certain vaccinations, like yellow fever, or is there an ETA, like an electronic travel authorization? Lots of places like New Zealand, Korea, um, the the UK is starting really soon to have this, where you have to register and put the informa- your information in and pay a fee all online. Um, but also laws, um, customs, there'll also be any... If there's any advisories, that's where it's going to show up. Uh, and uh, in the case of Hong Kong, uh, they are encouraging, obviously, uh, once they open up these free tickets, they're starting in Asia first, and eventually the rest of the world is going to be May 1st. Uh, uh, and it most likely, I'm going to assume for Vancouver, it'll be come through come through Cathay Pacific. But airlines generally, are they attracting back those employees that they laid off? Or are they still struggling to, 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 to attract uh, employees? I think it's a tough challenge um, for staffing. I think they're all trying to recruit. It was kind of one of those perfect storms. There was an aging workforce combined with a whole slew of layoffs and early retirements during the pandemic. So it's made for this perfect storm. So it's not just like crew, but it's pilots. And I think the pilots are the biggest concern to me um, because it's not a quick fix. But um, there was a report done pre-COVID about the situation and it was done by the Canadian Council for Aviation and Aerospace and it found that a third of operators here in Canada, flight operators, so tour operators, airlines, cited pilots as their biggest skill shortage, Jeff. Mm -hmm. And that same report forecasts that by 2025, which feels like it's just around the corner, like time is just flying by, that the industry would need about 7,300 pilots. Just to give you an idea, they say right now that there's an estimated 15 to 20,000 pilots in the system here in Canada right now. I've heard it's closer to like 15 to 17,000 pilots. 
that's almost half. We need 7,300 pilots by just 2025, and it's no fast recovery because it takes time to train qualified pilots, and it's expensive. Like, I think it's upward of $100,000 to become a commercial pilot, and that does not serve well for getting people into the cockpit fast. Mm-hmm. And we've seen we've seen the chaos of what a pilot shortage can be on a very, very tiny scale. Sunwing needed 60 temporary foreign worker pilots, and the government did not allow them to, to hire them. They, they thought that they could get them. They couldn't. Um, and because of that, we saw that brunt of issues. It was literally cancellations right across the country. It started in the prairies. Um, Manitoba and Saskatchewan, and then it ha- there were some flights out of Moncton, North Bay, Sudbury, even here in Vancouver, there were four flights that were actually cancelled um, because of this. So if that just is uh, an indication, we saw how many customers were affected and so sad for them. I mean, there were destination weddings that were part of those groups on Sunwing. There were people who had planned, you know, this was their first trip pre-COVID or since COVID, and I just... I feel for the staff, I feel for the company, I feel for the clients. It's just a nightmare. Yeah, and you got to remind yourself, it's not like these pilots and air crews can can work overtime. There's a set amount of hours they're allowed to work by law for their health yeah. and safety. Uh, and uh, and once that's done, you can't just have them work the extra hours like, like a lot of workers, that's for sure. No, and I was reading a headline today, Jazz, that the Europe was trying to push through one pilot in the cockpit. It was roof quickly turned down. Um, but that's how desperate they are. Um, it's a tough situation, and it's worldwide. Well, I hope that particular bit of policy you just mentioned one one pilot for uh, for uh, for a large seven forty seven. I don't think that's uh, something I think most uh, uh, British Columbians and Canadians would be uh, accepting. That's for sure. Thanks for your time, Claire. No, no. Thanks so much, Jazz. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Travel, of course, um, has been uh, in the news significantly. Part of it is the reason is because House of Commons is back in session. And one of the issues they're going to be looking at and uh, focusing on is the Air Passenger Bill of Rights. And now recently, um, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra said that the government will overhaul the Airline Passenger Bill of Rights in response to traveler claims that the system is fundamentally flawed. One only had a look at all the travel disruptions this past summer. And of course, over the Christmas travel season, people were frustrated at not only just the inconvenience, but the lack of accountability. And put this in perspective for you, the Canadian Transportation Agency, which is the semi-judicial body that uh, adjudicates the disputes between airlines and passengers, 
they now have a backlog of, get this, 33,000 cases. And the CTA says it'll take up to 18 months to review a complaint. 33,000 cases. It certainly speaks to a fundamental disconnect in what the public wants to see and what the airline industry is offering. Well, joining me now is Omar Kwan. He's a co-founder and chief growth officer at Goose Insurance, talking a little bit about the changes potentially coming to the Air Passenger Bill of Rights. Omar, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so walk me through what kind of things are you expecting the government will be uh, introducing? Um, I think it's it's really hard to tell right now, but I think based on what uh, Minister Omar Algabra was mentioning even during his initial speech, I think it's going to be more so around operations and logistics um, and also compensation for delayed luggage. Um, I think it has to do a lot around the processes and operations of how uh, passengers are communicated to, what are the timelines, what should be the service level agreements from the airlines back to the passengers, and what do we do specifically when it comes to uh, luggage. I'm sure we have all heard and seen the stories of you know, passengers who had air tags on their luggage and they were able to track it, but the airline wasn't able to track it and get them, or you know, what is the actual true recourse look like when a luggage is lost, damaged, or delayed significantly what is the airline's responsibility so i think i think we're going to see some movement around that there's already some particular recourse and compensation around you know what is the airline's responsibility in in terms of flight delays and cancellations when they are in control um although there's some misunderstanding around that uh, uh around why when would you be eligible for compensation, I should say. Um, but I think I'm going to see, I'm, I'm hoping at least, to see more expectations and specific guidelines for airlines in terms of communications and what their service level agreements should be back to the passengers. In the EU, aren't airlines responsible for delays and cancellations in most cases, except for you know extreme circumstances, let's say terrorist attacks or you know, airspace being closed or something like that. But there seems to be greater accountability in the EU and some would even say in the United States when it comes to the consumer. I still don't understand why, you know, when people, when airlines don't have enough people, somehow that's my responsibility. Uh, when they have scheduled poorly, that's somehow my responsibility as a consumer. I mean, I'm going to assume that's got to be part of it in regards to just that specific accountability. Uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, based on the air passenger rights right now, the CTA, the CTA has put together, uh, the Canadian Transport Authority, it is, we actually have better rules um, and, and, and guidelines in terms of taking care of the passengers than our neighbors on the, um, on the other side of the border, uh, U.S., EU, yes, the airlines are a little bit more responsible than, than the Canadian or North American airlines, but it really depends on what the situation is. If you're absolutely right, if it's a shortage of staff, if it is something maintenance, for example, aircraft maintenance, something that is within the airline's control, they're 100% responsible for um, uh, compensation and for taking care of the the customer um, and passenger. But if it is like the no-tam outage that happened or a big snowstorm that happened, that is completely outside of the airline's realm of responsibilities and control, frankly. Um, So in those situations, they're not necessarily responsible for 
giving you compensation, but they are responsible in rebooking you on the next available flight and getting you to your destination. I got about 30 seconds left here, but when I, in the, in the introduction to our conversation, the CTA, the Canadian Transportation Agency, has 30,000, 33,000 cases that it still has to go through, and it, it's, it takes 18 months to review a complaint. It also speaks to needing more resources at the government level, certainly at the at the CTA level, that they, that they clearly don't have enough based on the complaints, and we got this massive backlog as well. Absolutely. I think the airlines really need to get their act together to kind of, we are seeing pre-pandemic uh, more greater than even than pre-pandemic travel volumes. Um, and that's being reported on a weekly basis. There's passengers traveling all over the world, domestically and internationally. And the airlines needs to do a better job of their operations and communicating back to uh, passengers. Omar, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Get your popcorn ready. Now, the Jazz Joe Hall Show continues on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk movies for a second. It's a long time since I've heard that fluttering of the... uh of the uh, uh, the machine in the back. I did a documentary years ago in the movie industry, and I just love that old sound of the projector. But you don't hear that very often, of course. Everything's digital, but going to the movies is still important. Well, things are about to change in the United States, specifically for the AMC theater chain. Getting a prime seat there is going to cost you a little bit of extra money. The, the company itself is giving you this corporate answer. They're calling it their new Sightline product, which is a very uh, corporate way of saying we're going to raise ticket prices. What they're going to do is basically similar to music concerts, Broadway, or even sporting events, they're going to make you pay more or less for admission depending on where you choose to sit in the venue. Now, will that come to potentially Canada? AMC is a very big theatre chain, and usually what happens down there ends up in Canada as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about charging people extra based on where you sit in a movie theatre is Rick Forchuk. He's a movie blogger at Rick's Rants. Rick, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. Uh, tell me we're not heading in the same direction as stadium pricing, uh, uh, concert pricing, even Broadway pricing. But uh, sadly, based on this news, we're heading in that direction. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It will de- depend whether or not the public's going to accept this. Uh, this is AMC theaters in the United States. There are no AMC locations in Canada. They used to have eight, but they've all either been sold to Cineplex, half of them at least, and uh, uh, two to Empire Theatres, and two have just closed. So it's not a Canadian issue at this point. But, um, yes, they're saying that for performances after 4 p.m., uh, if you want a preferred sight line, which essentially means in the, in the middle of the theater, then you're going to pay $2 a ticket extra. And if you want to sit in that front row where you have to break your neck looking up at the screen, you can have $2 off. And all other seats are regular prices. Now, this is because movie theaters are really struggling post-COVID, and they're doing anything they can to try to increase revenue. I don't think this is a good idea, and I don't think people are going to really go for it. I, I, but, you know, it's only a couple of bucks, so maybe they'll say, ah, you know, it's $2, who cares? Uh, we'll see what happens with this one. It's hard, uh, one would, would think, to bring pricing like this and think that the consumer would accept it because we've, had, we've been doing it the other way for the beginning of time at the end of the day. Um, yeah. The challenge that movie theaters have before them, is it much more structural? And what do I mean by that? You know, big screen TVs are everywhere now. The prices have dropped. The audio from those screens aren't bad, but you can get an audio system on top of the TV that you buy. 
it seems to me that the movie experience itself is going to is just isn't as enthralling as it once was. Well, you're right about that, and um, uh, because home theater is so so well done today. Uh, also, jazz. One of the problems is that uh, you go to a theater and. I love the big screen. I love the big sound. But here's what I don't love. I don't love a guy two rows over looking at his email every 15 minutes or sending text messages. I don't like the person over there who feels it's okay to answer the phone and say, yeah, yeah, I'm in a show. Yeah, I'm watching. uh, What's this one called, honey? Oh, yeah, that's what it's called. That's what I'm watching. I I hate that. Uh, The etiquette around movie theater going is terrible. And now that we have in many places in Canada reserved seating, and you can book your seat online, so it's there waiting for you. Now, many people choose not to come until the very second the show starts. So the lights are down, uh, the movie is beginning, you're now distracted by them with their iPhone lights, spotlighting their way, trying to find their way to their seats. So etiquette is terrible. And there's one more thing since I'm on a tirade here. This is something they've been doing in the U.S. for a few years. We have started it in Canada, and I strenuously object to it. And that is when you buy tickets online now and get reserved seating at many of the Cineplex theaters, for example, uh, you pay for your ticket and then you pay a service fee. It's about two bucks, a service fee. Now, you're paying a service fee not to use their facilities, not to use their person at the cashier desk, not to use anybody. It would be like going to the supermarket and using the self-checkout and paying extra for a service fee. doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I'm afraid that um, as we go down this road, I think you're right, Jazz. I think that a lot of people and members of the public are going to say, this is nuts. I'm not going to do that. Others will shrug it off, but uh, it's a real issue. Now, the other thing that happened this past weekend uh, when 80 for Brady opened up was that uh, the theater chains in the U.S. discounted the tickets uh, because this was a movie that appeared, uh, appealed primarily to people who are older kind of a 65-plus set, mm-hmm. and that's a demographic that has not been going to the theaters because they're, they're still afraid of COVID and other things. So they've been discounting those tickets. So they're playing with prices every which way you can, some to say, it's cheap, come to the theaters, others to say, if you want a better seat, we're going to charge you for that. So, yeah, interesting stuff, and I don't like it when they mess around with, as you say, what we've been doing since time immemorial, Jazz. Yeah, you know, I, I, when I look at my own movie um, viewing experience, I go to less movies. I still go to the movie theater, but a lot less. I still haven't seen the uh, the new Avatar, and it's been out for a little while. And I'm okay waiting a few months, knowing full well it'll end up on Disney+, Plus. but I have a 14-year-old at home that continues to pressure me every weekend. I've just been busy, but we will <laughs> go. Went to Wakanda uh, as well, uh, Black Panther, sorry. Um, and I enjoyed yeah. it, but I knew what after I watched it, just uh, I think this past weekend, it was available on Disney+. Plus. So, so much of exactly. the stuff that we are producing ends up at, uh, uh, on streaming anywhere, or inevitably will. And if it's a super great movie, you really want to see, you'll go to the theater if it's going to be an experience. But, you know, I may go to the theaters now maybe two or three times at most per year compared to, let's say, once a month, if not even more. It seems to me that the theater experience itself, and the theaters themselves, there may be just too many of them for what we are now needing theaters for, which is the experience is there, but it's an experience that's rare compared to, you know, going every other weekend or something like that. Yeah, and the movie business on both sides of the border really hasn't bounced back post-COVID the way everyone hoped, everyone in the movie business hoped it would. So theaters are still, relatively speaking, empty. Uh, Theaters are still having a hard time getting people into those seats. And I think a part of that is exactly what you said, Jazz. 
uh, once a movie's been in theaters, it seems in many cases, two, three, four weeks later, it's available streaming at home and uh, you can watch it on your home theater and get the same experience. Uh, frequently, such films as Puss in Boots, which are available on video on demand, are still in theaters. Uh, Avatar is not available on demand yet, and that's really a big theater movie. I would encourage you to take your son to that one in the theater. I would really encourage that. It's really worth the experience and pay the extra for the 3D. Very seldom would I say pay extra for the 3D. Avatar is the exception. Yeah, but it's a challenge and it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, it's one of those movies you want to go and see, but you know, when movie theaters bring in the, uh, this this new program, it is American, it is AMC called Sightline. You know, if there's truth in in, uh, in marketing, more like nickel and diming is what they should be calling it. But it is what it is. Yes. I really hope it doesn't come across the border. Uh, Rick, uh, thanks for your time, my friend. My pleasure, Jazz. Thanks a lot. Let's talk about carbon footprint. Now, carbon footprint is the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions that come from production of products and services that you may use. And so that could be something as simple as how many miles you drive in a car, a bus, a train, or a plane. Uh, That includes vacation time, the energy you use at home, how much you spend shopping, um, your diet even, depending on if you are a vegetarian or if you like eating meat. All of those things play a role in your carbon footprint. And so our next guest says elected officials should share their carbon footprint. He'll also be introducing a motion in his city to do just that. Daniel Fontaine is a new Westminster City Councillor. He joins us now. Daniel, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me on, Jess. So uh, why do you want to introduce this motion? Well, first off, I'd say it's inspired through um, the completion recently I had to do of a financial disclosure form. So all elected officials, municipal officials in the province have to declare um, any kind of assets that we own. It's an annual form. It's relatively easy to complete. Uh, Just did that a little bit earlier this year. And it got me thinking, you know, a lot of our civic officials talk a lot about you know, climate crisis and, and the, the issue around climate change and the importance for, for others to change the way in which they're, they're running their daily lives. And I, I support that in terms of us, you know, being able to address um, climate change. But there's no way to actually capture whether or not these same civic politicians are actually walking the walk or they're actually doing what they want others to do. So I came up with this concept of the carbon emissions declaration and pledge form, and it's two parts. One is uh, every year when you fill out your financial disclosure form as a civic politician, this would only apply to your politicians, we would declare uh, what our estimate is in terms of our own carbon footprint and also make a personal pledge to do three things that we personally can do to reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, Pretty straightforward, pretty simple, uh, but it will help provide more openness and transparency to make sure that the people who are passing bylaws and passing you know, rules around single-serve cups or, or the kinds of things that we've been seeing in the last four to five years that, that we're also doing um, and we're living and, and walking that walk. And that's what inspired me to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in regards to, I know this is early, early days still, it's lost to go to committee and have, you have to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But what kind of things would you like to see on a disclosure form? Like, is it a question of saying, do you uh, commute to work and not, uh, you take SkyTrain or a bus compared to, let's mm-hmm. say, your personal vehicle? Does it come to your uh, diet? How often do you vacation? Are you flying? Yeah. What kind of things would you want the disclosure form to look like? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, there are a number of things that I've recommended in the motion. Obviously, we would send it to one of our committees to review and to come back to council on. But some of the things I've suggested is, 
you know, if, if I'm a city councillor and I'm talking about climate change and a climate emergency, I probably shouldn't be hopping on a plane and flying to South Africa for, you know, family holidays and those things without having that kind of captured and declared. So it's looking at things like um, personal travel, things like, um, you know, are you living in a high density uh, neighbourhood in, say, a condo, which has, a we know, a lower carbon footprint than, say, a single family home? Are you driving a, a Humvee versus an electric vehicle? All the, the types of things that you and I have heard about and politicians have passed laws at the federal, provincial and municipal level to do. I think it's important to see whether or not these same politicians like myself are living that life and whether or not we're making that uh, a part of our own reality. And I, I think, Jazz, it shouldn't stop just at the civic level. One of the parts of the motion is to encourage our provincial and federal politicians who are also um, talking about the importance of climate change for them to make that declaration as well. But that's a whole other step. We'll have to get it first started here in New West and we'll see where we can go from there. I guess you'd have to add, uh, if it was provincial politics, you'd have to add in um, the helijet uh, or mm-hmm. a regular uh, flight or uh, the ferry coat going over uh, as well and whether or not it's running on natural gas. Uh, I mean, I guess part of this uh, comes from, I think everybody knows that we have to play our part when it comes to climate change, but it also, I think, I'm going to assume part of it is also addresses the frustration the public have as well in regards mm-hmm. to you know, some elected officials sticking to what they're elected to do, which is stick to the basics. So, you know, I've talked about this before. You raised mm-hmm. the issue of paper cups. I'm not saying that's not important, but perhaps there's other things you should be focusing on rather than just some of those other bigger issues. Because in many cases, you could argue, leave climate change to uh, the federal government and the provincial government. And while cities have a role to play, the big stuff is going to be done by those governments. Am I wrong here? Well, I think the, the, the tab to, to do those types of projects absolutely is beyond any civic budget that I'm aware of in terms of being able to do uh, climate change adaptation or mitigation. But, you know, you make a good point. You know, when civic officials are, are getting into that game and passing bylaws on things like the paper cups or, or passing other bylaws around, you know, climate change, I think if, if the public is to have confidence that, that these things are the right things to do, they need to know that their leaders are doing them as well. And I think that's what the intent on this motion is really just a, an openness and, and declaration. You know, like if, if uh, through my financial declaration, um, you know, the public deserves the right to know if I own a couple of WestJet shares, I think they should also know whether or not I'm flying to Brazil or, or Europe or South Africa three or four times a year, given that I've also declared that there's a climate uh, crisis. That's really what the intent is on this, and it may not get it right to the carbon emission, but it'll give a general sense to the public that, you know, these are politicians who are delving into things that are primarily not necessarily within the civic official kind of realm, but they're actually living that life as well. They're actually not doing things that are contrary to the very bylaws that they're passing. So that, that's what I'm hoping we'll get. Have you uh, witnessed that hypocrisy? Maybe that's a strong word, but that hypocrisy, and I'm not just saying you're, you're new West council candidates, but just as someone who's been in and around public policy and, mm-hmm. and politics over the last 25 years, have you in your mind witnessed that, that hypocrisy? Yes, sadly I have, Jazz, and I'm not going to point fingers or name names, mm-hmm. but I have seen a number of elected officials who are bringing in uh, policies that they're asking everyone else to do things. They're asking everyone else to reduce their carbon footprints, and yet, you know, they're, they're getting on planes, they're flying to, you know, beautiful destinations, uh, you know, on their personal and private time, they're driving older vehicles that aren't, you know, electric vehicles. I, I mean, I could list a lot of things that I've seen, <laughs> and I just think that, if we're going to, as elected officials, have the public's confidence that this is important and it's so important, we're going to live the same life ourselves. 
this carbon emission declaration form will go a long way in helping the public to understand that their politicians who are asking them to do a lot of things to help fight climate change are actually walking the walk and they're doing the very things that they're asking the public to do. I'm curious, in your opinion, where can cities play a role when it comes to climate change? Well, as I've said many times in the last three months since I got elected, Jazz, uh, on October 15th, and it was an inaugural uh, meeting on the 7th, and I've told my colleagues this, cities have the biggest, most powerful tool that cities have to battle climate change is zoning. And everyone who, who knows this kind of stuff will know that if you zone and you develop cities badly, you will kind of hardwire in a, a massive amount of carbon footprint. So cities like New Westminster, which are fairly dense, uh, have had a high level of density, densification. Our carbon footprint in places where we have, you know, towers and, and townhouses and those places is much lower. That is a very powerful tool that cities have within our jurisdiction, and it costs the city nothing. And that's the, the, the magic of it all, is that you can control your zoning, and it's actually, we're within our lanes. These are the things that cities should be doing. So I'm encouraging my colleagues, rather than bringing in motions on, 25 cent paper cups or other things that they'd like to bring forward. Let's focus on how densification, on how zoning and how city good city planning can actually reduce our carbon footprint for not only next year, but for, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years into the future. That's what I'm hoping we focus on. And, and walk me through here. Uh, you're introducing the, the motion itself. Is it this week or next week? Yeah, so the motion it will be made public this week. Um, it will be provided as a notice of motion coming to Council on Monday, and then it will actually be brought forward for debate on February 27th, on Monday, February 27th. And that's where the opportunity for Council to debate it and for us to discuss whether or not we will adopt it along with our financial disclosure form um, uh, will come for, to Council for discussion. So it'll be in a few weeks. Well, good luck. Uh, hopefully it does pass and uh, it becomes a trend with other governments and city councils uh, as well throughout uh, the Lower Mainland. Thanks for your time today, Daniel. Certainly hope so. Thanks so much, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.